0: Hey everybody! Welcome back to the What If Project podcast. My name is Glenn. I'm your host, and with us today we have a very special co-host. What's your name?
1: Jordan. What is it? Jordan.
0: Jordan. Jordan is my daughter. She is four. Are you four years old or five or three? Four. Four years old. She's four and a half years old. Uh, and she's here playing with my sticky notes. Do you like my sticky notes? Yeah. Yeah. Are you stealing them? Yeah. Yeah. And you have you have my stapler?
1: Yeah.
0: And which one of your stuffies are here today? Introduce them. Uh,
1: puppy. Um, I mean puppy, unicorn, pelican, snowball, huggy.
0: That's right. We have our huggy pillow. Huggy pillow is what we sleep with at night.
1: And and we go to the creepy store.
0: We went to a creepy Halloween store.
1: And and it's called Halloween City.
0: Halloween City, one of those pop up stores, and they have all creepy stuff in there. So she wanted and, to bring her and, huggy and, and to do keep know, her safe.
1: Do you know? And there's a girl that goes like this. Ooh.
0: Yeah, the girl goes. Whoa, was she creepy?
1: Yeah, yeah, but she's not scary to me. But the big skeleton is so creepy.
0: The big skeleton. He was the Grim Reaper. He was like, I'm the Grim Reaper. He was a little bit weird, right?
1: Yeah, and when we walked past him, he goes like, I'm the
0: Beast. I'm the Beast. Hey everybody! But this is episode number 172. Say episode
1: 172. <laughs> no, 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 dude. Talk longer,
0: okay? We'll keep talking. We just gotta tell the people what we're doing. This is episode 172, and it's part number seven of our series. Say, Instant Replay.
1: Instant Replay. It's called
0: Instant Replay, where we're looking back over the last three years of episodes. I'm pulling out some of my favorites, blowing the dust off of the files, recording some new intros, such as this one. And now we're just having a good time, because three years is a long time, 170 episodes, is a lot of episodes, and I think there's a lot of good stuff to look back on and to remember, and so that's what we are doing. What are you doing with all of my staples, bro? <laughs> You're a goofball.
1: Oh,
0: and today's episode is with, say, Brandon Robertson.
1: Brandon Robertson.
0: Brandon Robertson. So Brandon is a gay pastor, lives in...
1: What do you know?
0: He lives in Washington, D.C. No,
1: he was in Washington Winnow.
0: Oh, yeah, Washington Well, That's that's where he lives. And uh, he's written a bunch of books. Head over to Amazon, type in his name. Um, his books are really good. They're easy easy reads. not like the content is easy, but he writes in a way that's very – you could just pick it up. Like It's like you're sitting down with him having coffee and he's just talking to you. Um, so really good stuff. Head over to Amazon. I'll put the links to some of his stuff why, why, in the, why, the show why, notes. Why,
1: why, why, why? Uh, but
0: this particular episode really stretched me a lot. What are you doing? You can touch them. Don't touch the microphone. You can't touch the microphone. Why? Yeah, it's going to get really loud for the people on the other end if you touch the microphone. We don't want to do that. Yeah. 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 But anyway, he talked in this episode about some stuff that really stretched me regarding God, uh, the Bible, some stories in the bible that i'm fairly familiar with but he really like took a took a different angle at them and really stretched me and uh so i think you're going to enjoy it if you've already listened to the episode like in the past when it first came out this was last summer 2020 the year that everything fell apart right with the bad sickness
1: yeah yeah isaac You're sick? Yeah, yeah. No, 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 no. Stomach bug. You had
0: a stomach bug. That wasn't the bad sickness, but you had a stomach bug. We call COVID the bad sickness in our house, so. Because it is, right?
1: Yeah. I, I, I don't feel good the other day. And, and, and I, why, way with mama, watched iPad videos. You watched
0: iPad videos with mommy. Yep, you got a stomach bug. She had a little stomach bug. Lasted a couple of days, but she's a trooper. We got rid of it, right? Yeah. But anyway, this episode dropped last summer, so if you've already listened to it, it'll be a good refresher. If you haven't listened to it yet, uh, I hope you're sitting down. <laughs> this would be a good intro uh, no, to Brandon no, Robertson.
1: No, no one.
0: Yeah. Hello, pink, pink. Pink, pink. That's right, pink, pink. Anyway, friends, uh, we're going to let you go because we're going to, I guess, continue stapling things. And if I don't stop soon, I'm going to have no more sticky notes left, and that's not going to be. A good thing. So say goodbye to the people.
1: Bye-bye! <laughs>
0: we hope you enjoy the episode and say let's roll the tape.
1: Let's roll tape.
0: Let's, oh, wait. And one other thing. Tell them in the show notes.
1: In the show notes. Our links. Our links.
0: To. Two. Patreon.
1: Patreon. And
0: buy me a coffee.
1: Buy me coffee. If
0: you love the show, if the show's been helpful to you, if you found it uh, like something that has stretched you and made you a little bit stronger or deepens your faith uh, head over there patreon buy me a coffee Wait. uh you can support the show financially patreon is like a tier based program every tier gets its own reward uh such as a weekly vlog uh or we ran out of staples i wonder why a weekly vlog uh, a um, bi-monthly kind of gathering where we we chat over zoom uh, a quarterly chat where you get to sit down with one of the authors or scholars who's been on the podcast before, huh? ask them questions. Yeah, we'll get more staples. We, we we ran out because you've used them all. Uh, your Patreon, if you support on Patreon, we'll be able to buy me more staples because they go pretty fast uh, around here. But anyway, all the links to that stuff will be in the show notes. Uh, but that said, say so let's roll the tape.
1: Let's roll the tape.
0: Here is the episode with the one and the only, the man, the myth, the legend. Brandon Robertson, enjoy.
2: I wish. wish I had a mansion, wish I was wish. something fancy. Uh, wish I own a pot on so the with the rainbow, kind of time clancy. wish uh, Wishin not had no death. Maybe rich. then I can't flex. Go in here to run, i am check. Wish I had no other CMO's speaking, i am going chest Wishing for my people. Uh I'm Wish rich. I had no better leaders. Have enough to make our own land, name my own people. Shall we bring our old sand? Where we live is so bland, so I'm much what high on demand tiptoe around throwing high lows feel like james brown free. love we go ahead and dance let me talk at the end of the day we know I'm who's at a fall we got our hands up ready for a box i just really got the I'm own free. lock I'm champion free. go ahead call the ambulance so we hey
0: everybody welcome back to the podcast uh today we are sitting down with my friend and repeat guest uh brandon robertson to talk about his book the gospel of inclusion and some important themes revolving around lgbtq plus so brandon Welcome back to the podcast, my friend. It's always an honor.
3: It's so good to be back here with you. Thanks for having me.
0: Oh, for sure. So uh, I read your book and I found it extremely um, insightful. And uh, one of the things that really jumped out at me actually came towards the end of the book in the first appendix where you have almost this like FAQ section where you answer some commonly asked questions that people have regarding LGBTQ inclusion. And one of the things one of the questions is how, how can I become a good ally to the LGBTQ plus Christian community? And the answer you, you gave, I think is, is wonderful. And it really made me do some reflection. So if it's okay with you real quick, I wanted to share kind of with you and our listeners uh, how this part of the book spoke to me. Is that cool?
3: Totally. I would love to hear it.
0: Perfect. So I'm going to read the quote real quick. You say, uh, let's see, there are LGBTQ plus people who are ready and able to speak up and act up for our own inclusion who are denied platforms simply because of their queer identity. And when multitudes of straight allies continue to step up and build platforms on our stories and experiences, they're actually, they actually only perpetuating systems of oppression against queer people. And this statement that you make, I think it's part of the reason why I wanted to put together this series that we're doing for Pride. Um, I, I would consider myself a straight ally. And God knows there are moments, Brandon, when I have flown off the handle in a passionate rampage online to defend my LGBTQ friends. And I've probably likely done them maybe more harm in those instances than good. And I also realize that the spirit has kind of given me somewhat of a platform here on the podcast, as small as it may be. And so the last thing I wanna do is get up on my straight soapbox and talk about all things LGBTQ, when the reality is that I know many people, such as yourself, who are more than capable of taking the mic and using their own voice. And sometimes I think, reflecting on what you said in that chapter or that piece of the book sometimes allies like myself i think want to be a voice for the voiceless instead of giving the voiceless a platform to use their god-given and very beautiful voice and so i just wanted to thank you for that section of your book because it really helped give me some solid i think helpful perspective
3: no totally thank you for reflecting on it and i mean it really that came out of not only um me thinking about how allies talk about LGBT inclusion, but also about how I'm an ally to so many of communities mm. and how it's so easy um, for those of us who have these platforms, whether it's blogs or podcasts or whatever, to kind of use the hot topic, even though we might not be trying to do it, but we use the hot topic to kind of build our own platform. Um, and I, I was seeing myself do that when really um, we have a responsibility to as Christians, I think, to be giving up our privilege and power for the good of the other. And if we can help others speak up for themselves, um, I think I think we're, we're doing more to make change happen. So I'm grateful for you and the reflection you've done and uh, for giving me a little bit of time on your platform.
0: Oh, for sure. I think it's easy. I mean, you strike me as a nerdy guy, kind of like myself. And I think it's easy to, you know, gather resources, gather books, read up on the topic, you know, Study it and then kind of present it to people when in reality it's like, oh, I could just bring on these voices and they could talk for us. Totally. So maybe that's a good place for us to begin. Uh, We have a lot of people listening to the podcast who would consider themselves allies, and some are like fresh out of this conservative evangelical world. And so they're still trying to figure out like how to make sense of the Bible. And we'll get to that in a moment. Others have been allies for a long time, but maybe talk to those people if you would. Like, what else can straight people do? to be a strong ally for you and and your community.
3: Yeah, totally. I think, I mean, I really do keep coming back to that line that you quoted um, about giving voiceless back their voice. I think Mm -hmm. looking around our communities, whether it's a church or a community organization or a family um, and, and instead of always, I mean, there's definitely a role, um, an important role for allies to speak up and defend LGBT people um, because there is such a thing as the fatigue that comes from having to defend your existence Mm. Um, and so it it is nice at at points to have um, allies speaking on our behalf and defending Mm. us in more conservative environments that are usually filled with straight folks Um, but I just think um, allies taking the time to where there is a queer person able to speak to elevate that person to speak on their own behalf if they're able mm-hmm. when they're not, when there's not a queer person, um, to do mm-hmm. what you talked about doing. Um, if there, if there's stuff going on online, like, um, y- there is a time to speak up and there is a time to put your own neck on the line and your own mm-hmm. resource on the line. Um, and I really, so much of my theology and life really is centered around that Philippians two passage, which talks about Christ Um, though he had equality with God, didn't use that equality as something to be exploited, but he gave it up. Mm. And I just, I want all of us, uh, ally, LGBT person, Christian in general, to be reflecting on what it means to acknowledge the platform, the privilege, the resources we have, and to begin asking, how can we utilize these not just for our own benefit, but for the benefit of others? Um, And so I think being an ally is in some senses akin to just being a disciple it means finding the marginalized place and being a voice for the voiceless giving the voiceless back their voice and using the resources we have to ensure that the voiceless do get a place at the table um in our systems and structures
0: i think too i think it's important to have to have relationship with people who um you're trying to stand alongside of because i know for me like coming out of that evangelical Christian world, I was in this bubble where, you know, I was with all people who were just like me. And it was very easy to look at the LGBTQ community as very different from myself and try to point out all the different flaws. But then when I came out of that bubble and I started to rethink things, it was easy to pick up books that would talk to me about the different clobber verses in the Bible and stuff like that and try to rethink my theology. But those things didn't really click for me until I actually became friends with people who were LGBTQ. And once I started to see their stories and hear about their life and hear about who they were and where they came from, how they got to where they are, all of a sudden, the things I was reading in my books began to merge with real life experience. and All of a sudden, I felt a much deeper passion.
3: Yeah, totally. I mean, I absolutely believe in the power of relationship to create the change that we are actually seeking in the world. But, um, mm. And with that, I, I think um, the only caution there is there is a way in which... Um, this tokenization process with any marginalization group, um, marginalized group can happen where, um, and I've had it, it's always well-meaning, but depending on who you're interacting with, it can be really um, triggering Mm. when um, like in a Christian community I was in, in Denver, when I lived there, it was primarily straight folks. They had just kind of moved to LGBT inclusion and I was the gay guy that everyone Mm. wanted to talk to and get to know uh, because this was new to them. And so I just think it's important to allow those relationships to be as natural as possible and yeah. not, again, to find a gay person. And then also, as soon as you're in a relationship with them, always make the conversation about sexuality or wrestling with the theology or whatever that is. Um, because obviously, again, it's, there's a lot of fatigue on marginalized communities. And when we enter into the church, we're just wanting to be a part of a body of Christ and all of its diversity, not necessarily um, waving our rainbow flag and like making it mm. about this identity. So
0: I guess if you make the person as like your, for lack of a better phrase, like your, your token gay friend, and you're going to pull them up on this pedestal and you're going to ask them all these questions, like it almost dehumanizes them in a way and makes them just like the answer to your questions, as opposed to uh, the friend and the human being that they are.
3: Totally. and yeah. And just the last thing on that is, um, I think we are so, everyone is so diverse and so mm-hmm. just because you know a gay person means you know exactly one gay person and like um, a gay Christian perspective that I have is going to be very different than another gay Christian's perspective and so it is important to just be engaging with humility and being in relationship wherever you can um, and always be willing to check your assumptions about people or what you think people should believe or feel about themselves um, Mm. and that's that's advice i think just in life in general not just engaging with the lgbt uh, community
0: yeah i think that goes for different religions right i mean different every christian is different every uh, muslim person is different so i think you learn different perspectives from different people depending on what their personal backgrounds and stories and stories are totally that's a good point so let's move into the topic of uh of the bible you have this chapter in the book called uh clobbered where you look at each of the the clobber verses or the Bible verses that typically are used by the church to um, outcast LGBTQ people. And I think you do a fantastic job of like diving into the specifics of each one of those verses. But you start off the chapter by saying something that I found really shocking at first, but after I considered considered it, I find myself just loving this idea. And I'm going to read the quote for our listeners. Uh, You say, I have no problem conceding that for some of these texts, uh, particularly the Leviticus passages, their interpretation in the ancient world would have been a flat condemnation of all forms of queer sexual expression. I agree with scholar William Loder's assessment that the Bible roundly condemns homosexual activity. Of this, there is not a shadow of a doubt. It's writers deplored homosexual acts as a deliberate perversion of human nature, a flouting of God's intention in creation. Uh so talk to us about this, Brendan, about how you as a LGBTQ Christian who is a pastor can take a, a quote like that and, and and agree with it in your own words concede that for some of these texts their interpretation in the ancient world would have been a flat condemnation of all forms of queer sexual expression. Like talk to us about that because when I first opened up the book, like that was the last thing I expected to read. So maybe take us into that a little bit.
3: Yeah. I, I mean I think there's that conclusion came out of of a frustration that I had as I began to enter into the LGBT Christian conversation. And Mm. it's it's the frustration that happens in any um, movement that is being forced to react, right? We go from one extreme to the other. And so we go from the Bible condemns everything, um, and there's no room for LGBT inclusion, to we must find a way for the Bible to uh, be completely affirming it's got to say that. Um, mm. And if it doesn't, then we've got a big problem. But I think the truth and when you dig into the scholarship um, beyond kind of the popular books that have been written about this topic, the scholarship, most people are quite honest. Um, even the most liberal of scholars will be quite honest and say, you really, you can't get around um, the the writing of Leviticus and what we know about ancient Near Eastern cultures and, <laughs> What those words mean in Hebrew, um, when, he, when the writer says a man shall not lie with a man as with a woman, for this is an abomination, he meant uh, if a man is having sex with another man, he's an abomination to God. Mm. And the cultural context there is important, though. And I've, I've been saying recently, at least, that I think one of the biggest um, blessings and curses in church history was when the Protestant Reformation um, encouraged the Bible to be interpreted by lay people, because at one Mm -hmm. hand, it allowed us to be freed from the hierarchy and the kind of oppressive ways of interpreting scripture that was so common, but it also gave birth to this idea that we can just take scripture on its face value Mm -hmm. and understand what it means and apply it to our day. The truth is the people of Israel, uh, ancient Hebrew people, they lived in a culture where they felt called by God. to separate from everything that was happening and all of the surrounding cultures around them. Mm -hmm. And in order to be different, they created these vastly uh, starkly different ethical standards um, around food, around sex, around relationships. And so when you read Leviticus, what you can also read in that one verse is lots of the other cultures around them were not condemning this uh, relationship between two men. Obviously if they're writing about it, it was happening. Mm -hmm. And, obviously there are cultures around them where it was okay and if you read through most of the 612 laws of leviticus there are some explicit places where it says uh, they put it in the voice of god and say i'm giving you this command to separate you from the rest of the cultures around you to be a distinct people um and and so with that context we can understand oh they're trying to be different they're trying Mm -hmm. to um, have a different ethic and so that's where this comes from so of course if we um were able to put it in a time machine the writer of leviticus and bring him to 2020 he would say everything he sees with homosexuality uh, i i think he'd say it was an abomination hmm. um but there are broader ways to read the bible there are interpretive methods that christians have held on to for thousands of years that say just because it says that in leviticus doesn't mean that that's what god's opinion is um it doesn't mean that's what his opinion was then, and it doesn't mean that it stayed the same for 4,000 years since. Um, mm. And that's what I tried to argue in the book, is that God is still speaking, Scripture evolves, ethics change. And I think that's a better and a stronger and a more historical um, argument.
0: There's a sense, too. I think you talk about it in the book, about maybe that idea of patriarchy. Maybe you could talk a little bit about that, because I think if you look at the Bible, like the Bible is written in a patriarchal world or those values, those things are very important. But sometimes I think we read the stories of the Bible, we read these commands in the Bible, and we think that the Bible is teaching us patriarchy, that patriarchy is the right way, when in reality, it's just that the stories are written against a backdrop of that. Is that correct?
3: Totally. I would say that patriarchy isn't the will of God per se. It was just the culture that they lived mm-hmm. within in, uh, in the time of the writing of the Hebrew Bible. And actually, through most of the Bible times. And so, in the same way, when I write a book today, my culture is reflected in it. The assumptions of my culture are built into the book so that when somebody picks up Gospel of Inclusion, if it's still around in 2,000 (laughs) years, um, they're going to need to know what life was like for me in 2020. And they're going to need to know my basic assumptions about the world. And if they don't, then they could mistake things that I'm saying as this prescriptive um, way of describing the world rather than just a reflection of how the world actually is in my current life.
0: So I guess in, in reference to that, that quote from, from loaders that we read a little while ago, uh, I guess it's correct me if I'm wrong, but it's almost like we can be free to just let the Bible say what it says while recognizing that it was saying that to a specific Culture for specific reasons, and we can learn from that. Doesn't necessarily mean it's speaking the same thing to us in our culture today.
3: Exactly, and and the bigger insight too. Just as a side is, mm-hmm. this is how the Jewish um, interpreters of scripture, the rabbis in the Talmud, have always viewed the Bible. Um, one of the critiques that I've seen by some conservatives of this book is that um, somehow I'm anti-Jewish or anti-Semitic because I'm saying that Jesus. And his standards were better than that of the Hebrew Bible, and that's, and we'll get into that in a few minutes, I'm sure. Mm. But um, that's that's not the case there. This is actually the. If you look in the Talmud, which is really what most Jewish communities look at to understand what God's will is, um, the rabbis are playing with the text, and they understand mm. that the spirit of God is still speaking through the text, and they challenge parts of the text, and that's just not something we're used to in Protestant Christianity, mm. but it is the jewish undergirding of how we are supposed to interact with scripture
0: yeah and uh amy jill levine came on for uh our easter series and she was talking about that very idea that you know jewish even today i mean all throughout history you know jewish people would look at the text and they would they would wrestle with it and they would argue about it they'd have different opinions about it but then they would go home they'd shake hands and they go home you know and like that was it and they come back the next day and they would do it again whereas she said in the protestant church, like you guys you guys have it kind of messed up. <laughs> you think that the Bible has this one meaning and is to be understood in this one way, but in reality, that's not at all. what the history of the book has, has it been like for, for all these years? Totally. I love yeah. that. So another thing I found interesting in the book um, is what you shared regarding the crucifixion of Jesus and uh, emasculation. And uh, there is like so much that you could obviously unpack there and I could listen to it all day, but maybe take us down that rabbit hole, a little bit like this was very new to me so how, how is crucifixion emasculating you talk about how it ties into sexuality sexual abuse and why are these things like an important topic for the topic of lgbtq inclusion because for me like growing up i was taught like the crucifixion is simply one of the many ways the roman empire punish people to give them a slow and agonizing death and if you were crucified it's because you were a threat and basically that's the end of the the story, but you bring a lot more insight um, into that.
3: Yeah, um, I'm. I'll, I'll just say I'm becoming a geek for uh, learning about the ancient Greco-Roman world. Hmm. I spent most of my seminary degree doing that, and then like over this quarantine, um, the 20 books that I've bought have all been on this topic because I <laughs> like really I said we're both nerds. <laughs> exactly. I I do. I really feel like if we don't take the time to understand. context you're not going to understand the scripture and this um insight about crucifixion is a prime example because you're right most of us most christians just have an understanding that the cross is this strange thing for some reason that jesus was crucified on as an act of salvation, and that's pretty much as far as most people's understanding go. Some of us have a little bit better of a perspective, like the one you described, where we understand that this is a common tool in the Roman Empire for crucifying rebels against the empire. But lots of us have never taken time to actually reflect on how crazy the story of Jesus's crucifixion is, this Mm. drama that they play out of not only arresting him, but then dressing him up as a king, but taking his clothes off so he's naked and mm. parading him through the streets and beating him. Like this, is, this isn't just we're taking someone to the electric chair in our modern day parallel. This is, we're making a spectacle out of this person. Mm. Why? Um, and what I articulate in the book is that in the Greco-Roman world, one's identity wasn't defined by what you were attracted to or who you were attracted to when it came to sexuality, one's sexual identity, but also social identity was tied to your role in a sexual relationship, hmm. which means if a man penetrates, he is seen as powerful. He is seen as at the top of the social hierarchy, anything that is penetrated, which would be all women. It would be um, eunuchs and um, intersex people. and Um, people that were born with other sorts of deformities uh, to their genitals, and it would also include any men who were penetrated by um, other men, which would be the passive partner in a homosexual relationship. All of those people were seen as less than and basically usable Mm. by this class of people that were the penetrators. And so the act of crucifixion, Like it's not a stretch at all to understand that the people watching Jesus be paraded through the streets in Jerusalem understood that this is an act of uh, sexual violence happening to Jesus. This is an act trying to show that he's not a man at all, but Mm -hmm. that he, if you read what some scholars use, um, the words they use to describe Jesus would be super crude in our day. But Rome was literally trying to, make him a sissy to use a nice Mm -hmm. word. Um, Mm -hmm. And so they beat him, they mock him, they pierce him time and time again. It's not just one nail or um, three nails. No, they put a crown of thorns on his head. They pierce his side. All of that is this drama they're playing out in public saying, we are basically penetrating Jesus. We, the empire, the powerful one is coming in and taking away his social currency which the only currency jesus would have had as a jewish man was his manhood Mm. and so if you understand that happening and then you bring the christian theology that says jesus goes to the cross willingly that he not only predicted his death but he accepts the cup of uh, god's wrath as he talks about and decides to go to the cross and take on the Roman Empire, fully accepted, that means that Jesus was willing to fully give up his manhood, his social currency, Mm. for the good and for the salvation of the world. And I use that image, and I think that is the focal point of Christianity, but also this argument I'm making for inclusion. If Jesus is willing to say, not only am I giving up my privilege and power, but I'm giving up the one thing that gives me any ability to move around in my environment, my my manhood, I'm willing to sacrifice that in order to show you that this conception of manhood that you have is actually not all that powerful after all, then I think that's a profound message to a church that has been perpetuating hyper-patriarchy for the past 2,000 years mm-hmm. and, and the resurrection. Um, I think it's intentional that the writers of scripture talk about jesus still bearing these marks of penetration these marks of mm. nails penetrating his hands and forever if you look in revelation the lamb is slain and that image in a greco-roman mind would have been in a, a queer image it would have been neither male nor female and mm. in that i think jesus embodies both mm. um, and the last thing i'll say because i get excited about this and go on for an hour <laughs> the most controversial claim is obviously that The word that is used for the person who has been penetrated, um, the man who has been penetrated in Greek is malakoi or malikos. And that's the word that Paul uses in 1 Corinthians that our English Bibles often translate to be homosexual. And the word only means that you've been penetrated by another man. You're a man who's been penetrated. And that would have included sexual penetration, and that would have included being nailed to a cross. And Mm. so using the way we've misinterpreted that word, we'd have to say that Jesus himself was or became a homosexual because he willingly allowed himself to be penetrated. He stood in solidarity with women, with slaves, with those who are marginalized because of their identities. Um, And I think, again, there's just so much power in that imagery, not just for the LGBT community, but for women and for all people who are yearning Earning. for a society that is more equal and just.
0: That's amazing. I think we've, we've often looking back like on my, my own theological education and my own upbringing in church. Like I think we've almost done an injustice to this part of Jesus's story because we often make him out to be um, this, you know, he's, he's more God than he is human kind of thing. Like he's, he's more divine than he is, human. He's, he's strong. He's, he's mighty. He's powerful. He's, he's our role model. And all those things are true. But when we, when we focus so much on that, I think we lose all these things that you just talked about. Cause there's so many times where I've come across people who in their story have had um, sexual abuse, they've had emasculating experiences. And one of the things I've always struggled to I guess to show them is how Jesus can stand in solidarity, how Jesus does stand in solidarity with them, because I've been missing this part of the story. But I think when you when you describe it the way that you did, someone who has experienced years or even a lifetime of abuse like that is able to see that in Jesus. And all of a sudden, feel I think a, a level of comfort there that might not have been there before.
3: Totally, and and that was it, honestly an insight that was like the last thing added to the book was the uh, sexual assault portion of it. Mm. Because one, I had never read the scholarship, but um, I quote in the book at length, um, a South African scholar, who suggests that, I mean, if you're, again, imagining that act of uh, the arrest, trial, crucifixion of Jesus, Mm. it would have been, it's so easy to imagine that he actually would have been, to use an ancient word, sodomized, so that Mm. they would have literally sexually assaulted him as a way of humiliating him. And you can Mm. almost see it in the text when the soldiers are surrounding him and beating him and throwing him on the ground. And that's just something the Roman um, mobs would have done in this Mm. process. And when I heard that, obviously, that has such a a profound uh, and disturbing and also beautiful redemptive side to say that Christ himself knows what it's like to be in the midst of the worst kind of abuse. Mm -hmm. And like you said, I think there's hope and liberation there for others who have suffered that same kind of abuse.
0: Yeah. And I think assuming that those things are true and that that did happen, if he carries the wounds in his hands and his feet, then he certainly carries those wounds with him as well. And I think that that, that gives me goosebumps when I think about, when I think about that. Because how often yeah. do we want to, whatever the wound is that we're carrying, we, we want to get rid of it. We want to wash it away. We want to make it all better. We want healing. We want restoration. We want it just gone. But Jesus continues to carry his wounds with him. And I think that that can relieve a lot of pressure off of people, whatever their wound may be. Yeah, I love that. So uh, last question for you. Talk in chapter six um, about the power of relationship when it comes to understanding uh, the other side in the discussion about the LGBTQ inclusion. You make a really powerful statement. You say that theological debate is not the foundation for changing hearts and minds on this topic, and I think we probably all know that that's that's definitely uh, the case. But maybe talk to me more about that, because like if minds if minds aren't changed by firing Bible verses back and forth at each other, uh, showing up one another's theology with a a better, deeper argument, and like what is? Or maybe a better question is like how should an LGBTQ Christian or ally go about dialoguing with the other side if maybe debating isn't the best place to start? Because that's, I think we all fall back on that, right? Because if you're throwing a Bible verse at me, well, I've got to show you that the context of it is wrong. I got to give you a better explanation of it. But we all know like on Facebook or Twitter, that just goes on and on forever and never goes anywhere. So like, what do you think is a better way in your experience to go about this discussion?
3: Yeah, I think there's so much to that. And so much of my own experience has led me to that conclusion. I think, I mean, first of all, we know that if there's any more traditional or conservative Christians that are listening to this podcast and they just heard me talk about all that we talked about, like, (laughs) obviously shut it off at this point, (laughs) right? Like that theological paradigm. Here's what I say, said, or would pick up my book and say, this is just crazy radical left wing stuff. Yeah. And that the conversation's over It's Mm -hmm. shut down. Um, What I discovered, I mean, right when I came out and I had my outing in Time Magazine, there was like this period where um, the evangelical church really wanted me to be on their platforms debating with people. And um, I I went to the National Religious Broadcasters Association in front of 10,000 people and got on stage and debated with uh, Michael Brown, who's this very conservative scholar, and I realized once I got off the stage and had expended so much of my energy and put myself in such a vulnerable position that not a single person in that room shifted their perspective because of any of the arguments I gave. And in mm-hmm. fact, conservatives, because we have very different theological paradigms, our starting points are different. They're, they're going to, if you believe that the Bible is the inerrant inspired word of God, and a conservative's argument is going to sound much more compelling than me saying we actually need to understand the cultural context because it doesn't actually mean what we think it means and all of that. Mm. Um, it's, it's just not, it's not an even plain playing field. And, but the one thing that happened when I did get off that stage and lots of times that I've debated since then, that people say, I really appreciate it. One, you your you're, character and your demeanor on the stage. Mm. Um, I, I, I admire that you were compassionate where they were being kind of cruel. And they've also said, I've admired hearing your story that you were a person among, among us. You were growing up in our churches. And I wonder how many other people like you are in my church right now. And the story and the mm. kindness is what actually began the process of transformation, not my theological arguments as good or as bad as they might have been. Mm. And um, I've just seen so many people hurt themselves, frankly, by spending so much energy and time feeling like they've got to win a battle Mm. of theology when that's not actually shifting most people. That's the last brick that moves. The first brick that needs to be pulled out from a non-affirming paradigm is the one that says LGBT people that are Christians don't exist Mm -hmm. and that you can't really love Jesus and be gay. Like I want to bring people into the room at the Q Christian network conference as a first step and see uh, 4,000 gay Christians worshiping God and then say, what do you do with this? Let's Mm -hmm. talk about your theology now when you see the spirit of God moving in reality. Um, And so I do think um, and have devoted, this portion of my ministry to being in relationship with conservative folks to helping people try to stay in relationships with people that might not affirm them because it's only when, as Jesus said, we let our light shine that people will see um, God in us, God moving through us. And that that experience is what will ultimately change someone's heart and then their mind will change later.
0: Mm, I love that. And I think too, like what you were saying about, you know, the uh, theology is kind of like the last brick to move. And I think when it comes to, I know a lot of these conversations happen on on social media because that's just where all these things seem to come up these days. But I think that's one of the first things that we we go to is the theology piece. And it made me think while you were talking, uh, about a year ago, I had a conversation with somebody on Facebook and it went on for days. And I mean, and, you know, we went back and forth with all this, Bible stuff and this cultural stuff and the background things and back and forth and back and forth and finally it dawned on me and I said to to the person and the conversation finally ended I was like I don't think that you and I are ever going to be able to meet anywhere in the middle because we're reading the Bible in fundamentally different ways like for me like for for this person it was you know the Bible is inerrant it says what it says it's very black and white and that's it like the word homosexuality and detestable are in the same sentence like. That settles it, you know, and I'm trying to explain the background of it. They're you know, like the background is irrelevant. We just kind of went back and forth. And I think I think it's important to realize that this topic has a lot of layers to it. And so the thing that you might be dialoguing about might not really be the thing you're dialoguing about. Like you might be dialoguing about a deeper issue, which is how you read the Bible, how you understand the Bible.
3: Yeah. And that's how I've begun most of my talks, um, when I've gone around and talked about this is that the problem isn't like you said at the very beginning of this interview, the six verses in the Bible. The problem is our entire theological paradigm, and mm. that scares people. Um, I also say in another book that I think the slippery slope that people are worried about it's it's real. you should be prepared to go down it, but it's not a slippery slope towards hell it's a slippery slope towards liberation and towards an openness to what the spirit might be saying, like mm. our whole paradigm needs to change and we also forget that philosophizing and theolog- theologizing is a bit of a game, and if mm-hmm. you're not starting on the same playing field, um, if you concede to a traditionalist that the Bible is the inerrant word of God, I don't see a way that you can actually win that argument. And mm-hmm. it's if you're not willing to concede that, oftentimes there is no debate to be had. Um, and I just I think we need to be a little bit more Um, mature about how we think about what these debates are actually um, about and how people are engaging in them and what our core beliefs are at the start because as you said you're going to spend an hour either having to concede to things you don't believe or Mm. uh, or the person's not going to be interested because you're a heretic uh, within the first couple words
0: (laughs) right for sure now you said earlier a little while ago that uh, one of the things that people have commented on is the the compassion that you're able to show people when you're kind of being attacked or they're firing Bible verses at you or whatever. What what would you say? Like, what is something that you've learned about how to remain in a compassionate or or humble position when you're in those kinds of conversations? Because again, a lot of the people who are listening are kind of trying to navigate through how to have these discussions. A lot of the discussions are heated discussions. So, what is your advice to that person to remain in a compassionate and and humble place?
3: I mean, the truth is that for a lot of folks, they're not in a place where they should be engaging these conversations with people that are uh, opposing or non-affirming. Mm. Um, I, I've had years to to work on myself and to kind of reconcile with those people who hurt me. And mm. I also think I have a, a special gift. I think some people are called to bridge building kind of ministries. Yeah. And I've always had this disposition to want to go into disagreement. And I've been doing that before I knew I was uh, openly LGBT. So mm-hmm. it, it's it's a hard thing to do. And I would say for a lot of people, it can be really traumatic. So make sure you're ready to enter into a situation. Um, and then the other thing that really um, keeps me grounded is once you learn to empathize with others, and I can empathize with a uh, conservative mom in Iowa who's only known one way of thinking about the Bible her entire life and only heard that being homosexual would send someone to hell and then Mm -hmm. her son comes out as gay and she has no resource other than to respond the way that she's been trained Mm -hmm. Um, and we all are conditioned in ways to respond and so I have a a bit of an empathy to know that when people are spouting out non affirming junk at me, that Mm -hmm. oftentimes it's not their words. It's words that they've learned. And, um, and if you can begin to relate to people on that story level, even in the midst of them coming at you with crazy Adam and Eve, not Steve's stuff, (laughs) um, like you, your compassion towards them will, be the first key to begin unlocking them to change their minds. Your ability to say, I'm going to choose not to be offended because I, in the same way Jesus said, they know not what they do. This person doesn't know what they're saying right now. They don't Mm. know the impact of their words right now. And so getting in that mindset has been what has helped me maintain some sense of calm. Um, But I've definitely had my fair share of interactions that have not been calm at all.
0: Mm. I think that's a really good point that you bring up too about, everybody might not be ready to step into that kind of discussion. And I think that that's a a valuable lesson that we can probably all learn is that not everybody might be called to that discussion or called to that discussion ever, but maybe even called to that discussion in the moment. And I know for myself, like I'm becoming much more comfortable when those kind of discussions begin just saying like, look, I don't, I don't have all the answers. I don't really know the answers to your questions, but I do know that this is where my heart is now. This is where I am on my journey. Like, if you don't like that, that's okay. You know, I respect where you're at and maybe you can respect where I'm at. We could just kind of go on with, with our day. You know, I think there's there's something to be said yeah. about being able to diffuse uh, a debate, so to speak, with something like that, Those kind of that kind of approach.
3: Totally. And I yeah. think we need that in every sector of our society. These yeah,
0: days. yeah, for sure. <laughs> yeah. There's many sectors, right? <laughs> for sure. Yes. Well, Brandon, uh, this has been a lot of fun. We're just about out of time. Uh, thank you so much for... Joining me, I think this will be a great way to kick off the uh, the series in June. So, thank you.
3: Thanks for having me. It's always good to be with you.
0: Yeah. Before you go, uh, oops, I don't know where my phone is. Siri just popped on. But before you go, uh, where can people find you online these these days?
3: Um, well, in these social distancing quarantining days, hopefully it, by the end of June we're not in this. But yeah. uh, <laughs> but. Um, I'm, I'm on Instagram and Twitter a lot but the best way to get to there is through my website brandonrobertson.com
0: I'll put all the links to your stuff in the show notes and I'll talk to you again soon Cool, thank you,
3: thank you so you, much sir. Bye-bye
2: Came up from all the struggle We still in trenches There's no tomorrow Tighten up like some riches See it all on my skin It is so I'm grinning Get happy for my own people moving forward now let's get it let's take it back in the day we came up from the bottom made it up to the top like we all want the lotto we all rich in the love ain't got more than enough it can spread the whole masses just trust me this not a bluff just know you're worth it don't settle we not wasting no time but we can't get it back Oh, yeah, we gon' be fine. We move in like we on Broadway. Let us get our shine. Already conquered the past. Why there's still a divide? Break down, let's come together. Put one fist in the air. No worries about the outsiders. We ain't got no care. Got the Oracle by ya. Let me go grab a chair. Share stories about our ancestors. They die for us to be heirs. I was yeah. born by the river. Baptize me, don't chastise me. I'm a cop. Frustrated by the gentrification, seems like we run out of time, need to get educated, we all on the front line. We just fighting for freedom. No time for all the ignorance. We know that you all see this. Knowledge is power. people getting killed by some cowards. And like you don't hear us. Cool, we getting louder and louder. We stronger than ever. No need for all the comments and doubting, When you are the other. Our voices keep on bouncing and bouncing. With day it'll hit you. Feel that day is coming real soon. All the lies on the news. All the wrongful accused. Why they always seem to bring up every lameful excuse. We need justice. We ain't got no time for picking and choosing. No more killing, no more choking. Why y'all standing refusing? Day is coming when we start to do more winning than losing. One last thing I love me, I love being black. Matter of fact, I'm a black man in America. Respect I on that Baptize me, don't chastise me. I'm a couple.